The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The administration's response to... Some of my reporting and, and others, I mean, I, I broke the news about Josh Paul and, and all that. And the admin has said, well, we're doing listening sessions. There was one at the State Department just this morning uh, for a, a significant number of bureaus. But just saying to people, we're listening, we hear you, is like that bad scene in succession, right? Like it doesn't actually allay people's ongoing concerns about the policy decisions that are being made and, and that they feel really implicated in as U.S. officials. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 27th, 2023. It's probably fair to say that the Israeli government was not the only one caught flat-footed by the deadly attack launched by Hamas on October 7th. On that day, several of the U.S. government's top diplomatic posts in the Middle East were vacant, and the Biden administration had long focused most of its attention elsewhere in the world. And in a now infamous episode from only a week prior to the attack, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had said, The Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. But all that has changed. Though its record is still up for debate, the U.S. diplomatic response has kicked into gear, with several visits to the region from Sullivan, Secretary of State Blinken, President Biden, and other high-level U.S. officials. To take stock of the U.S. diplomatic response to the war thus far, I sat down with Akbar Shahid Ahmed, HuffPost's senior foreign affairs reporter, and Robbie Grammer, a diplomacy and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. We talked about the nearly broken Senate confirmation process, the fallout from a high-level diplomatic resignation, and the potential mutiny brewing inside the State Department. We also discussed whether or not a reported dissent cable circulating throughout the State Department might shift U.S. policy toward Israel-Palestine. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 27th, the U.S. diplomatic response in Gaza, with Akbar Shahid Ahmed and Robbie Grammer. First, I was wondering if you could uh, set the scene for us. So if both of you could maybe just sort of sketch out at a high level the U.S. diplomatic response so far since October 7th toward Israel and, and Hamas. And Robbie, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, this this gruesome attack on, on Israel um, caught Israel as well as its top ally, the United States, completely flat-footed. This came at a time when the United States has really been trying to put the Middle East behind it 
really focus on the war in Ukraine and this era of global competition with China. Um, I think everyone in Washington, including top Biden administration officials, were eager to quietly, you know, put the Middle East in a little box and say, okay, our 20 years of intervention and costly intervention and conflict there is over. It's time to focus on the great power competition, big geopolitical issues. But as always, if if the US tries to get out of the Middle East, the Middle East finds a way to, to drag it back in. So this this uh, really gruesome terrorist attack in Israel obviously provoked this this massive military response from Israel. Um, we're in the midst of that now. Um, we are seeing Israel undertake a massive uh, bombing and striking campaign of Gaza, one of the most densely packed populations uh, centers in the world, seeing a lot of civilian casualties come out of that. And it's it's put the United States in the, in the middle of this massive crisis in the Middle East at a time where, where it's really trying to get out of the Middle East. Yeah, and Akbar, did you want to add anything to that? Absolutely. I think um, Robbie set it up pretty well on where the U.S. administration wanted to be. It certainly wasn't here. And what I'd like to do is just give you a sense of the players involved, right? So from the U.S. side, this is definitely being driven by a very small group of players, um, President Biden himself and some folks around him. So National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Tony Blinken. This is a very, very high level operation. And and essentially for them, what they're trying to do is is not have a conflagration that, you know, leads to the U.S. being further sucked in, leads to greater humanitarian chaos, um, losses. Uh, Useful to understand, too, that, you know, this is coming at a time when no one no one relevant to this scenario really wants to deal with each other or talk to each other. President Biden has a long history with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu is leading the Israeli response, but Israel within itself is deeply polarized and fractured, and he's having to work with a lot of people who don't have a lot of trust in him, including many members of Israel's security establishment. And then there's the Palestinian side, where a lot of civilians are suffering, right? And are doing so under two broad Palestinian leadership movements that are not representative of most Palestinians because there hasn't been an election uh, in almost 20 years. So that's Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. All of that to say, putting these pieces together is a Herculean task and everyone kind of has motivations. Unfortunately, that, that could keep the conflict going. Yeah, Akbar, you laid out really well um, some of these external constraints and challenges that have challenged or, or bedeviled, I think, the U.S. diplomatic response, especially the State Department. Um, Rabia, I was wondering if I could turn to you to talk through some of the internal challenges. You know, what what internal constraints did the U.S. diplomatic corps have heading into October 7th? I'm thinking particularly of uh, early on, I think you were one of the first people I saw at least to point out the the very high level diplomatic vacancies, for example, at State and in the Biden administration. Could you speak to some of those? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is, I feel like this, I've been covering the State Department for a better part of a decade. And I feel like I've written this story six trillion times from a different angle, um, basically, that the United States just doesn't have diplomatic heavyweights in the field, because of hyper politicization in Washington, foot dragging on the part of the administration, um, you know, political impasse in the Senate, the time it takes to confirm 
U.S. ambassadors or other senior diplomatic posts has just gone up and up and up over the years. And so when this crisis happened, there was a really thin bench of full Senate-confirmed top diplomats in the field. The U.S. didn't have an ambassador to Israel or to Egypt, two of the most important postings here, obviously. Um, I mean, it hasn't had a top counterterrorism coordinator for I think the better part of two years and the top USAID official for the Middle East post, a post that would really be coordinating any sort of crisis response and the type of rushing humanitarian aid into Gaza if the gates are open and humanitarian aid is allowed to flow in. That top post at USAID has been empty for the better part of three years, as well as the top State Department post for human rights, uh, which is a problem for administration that has hung its hat on saying human rights is a centerpiece of its foreign policy. You know, Akbar has done some great reporting on some of the internal tensions within the administration on its approach to supporting Israel, on its approach to this massive humanitarian crisis in Gaza. But even before we got to that point, uh, there just weren't enough players on the field to to respond to this crisis in, in an adequate way for the administration. I think no matter what, given how important Israel is, how the situation is a massive political tinderbox. You would have seen high-level engagement directly from Biden, directly from Sullivan, directly from Blinken. But not having these ambassadors on the ground with the contacts, the experience, you know, the the years sitting there really handicaps us in in a lot of, I guess, diffuse ways that you might not see from the outside, but at least from the inside and how the interagency works. I think it's a really big issue. Yeah, and, and Akbar, I definitely want to dig into some of the fantastic reporting you've done on the internal tensions and dissent at state. But just to dwell on this vacancy and approval process point for, for just a bit longer, I guess, Akbar, we can go first to you. How have you seen these vacancies play out in other ways, in other real ways? You know, I'm, I'm cautious to to pin some pitfalls, you know, squarely on on the vacancies. It's a confluence of factors. But how have you seen these, uh, you know, this this actually play out uh, since the seventh? I'm thinking, you know, one of your stories you reported about Americans trapped in Gaza and and not having access to to certain information. Yeah, what can you uh, point to that that these vacancies have caused? Yeah, I think two things immediately come to mind. Um, one is to your point about the Americans trapped in Gaza. Uh, Gaza has been a blockaded region, right, for twenty years because of Israel and Egypt, or, or you know, Israel Egypt choosing to do that. So the ambassadorship in Israel is extremely important, but the ambassadorship in Egypt, the only country you know that is not a party in this conflict right now, is hugely important. So not having an ambassador there in Cairo, I think, is a real limitation for the U.S. government, uh, which has an extremely complicated relationship with Egypt. In any scenario, um, Egypt is a major recipient of American aid, but also is run by an autocratic leader who has a lot of issues with the United States over human rights and other things. So what we're seeing is where Egypt is the determinant factor on aid, on whether the estimated 600 American citizens in Gaza can get out on negotiations with Hamas. Egypt is central to that. Not having ambassadors is a real limitation for the U.S. because there's only so much that Washington can do and there's only so much that you know the State Department lawmakers can do. The second way it manifests a lot is in the push-pull in the interagency and within the government, right? So anyone working on national security knows there's a constant complaint from the State Department 
that it's not heard, its policy expertise is not tapped, decisions are made at a different level. I think not having those ambassadors, those high-level people who are directly connected to the State Department and hearing from policy experts there, hearing from personnel who might have relationships or personal insights, not having those ambassadors really makes State a much weaker player in this whole conversation, which is a shame, right? Because that's the agency where foreign policy expertise is cultivated and is supposed to inform policymaking. Yeah, and Rabia, I'd love to go back to you to first see if you have any knock-on effects that you would add to this particular issue. And then I understand at the time of recording, uh, yesterday you were on the Hill covering the approval process for the next ambassador to Israel, Jack Lew, or you know potentially the next ambassador. So I'm curious how you how you see this broken approval process changing in light of this tragic outbreak of war? Yeah, I mean, I think Akbar said it well there. One one thing I will point out is this, this has now become a pattern of the United States retroactively getting its act together and rushing an ambassador into a crisis hotspot after the fact. We saw this in Niger in West Africa when there was a coup in late July. The US hadn't had an ambassador to Niger And after this coup, um, which was a really, uh, it was a total game changer in the region because the U.S. had hinged a lot of its security policy and counterterrorism policy on partnering with the fragile government in Niger. We rushed an ambassador there. And we're doing the same in Israel now. Jack Lew, he's the former Deputy Secretary of State, former Treasury Secretary under Obama, um, had his hearing in recent weeks. He was nominated about uh, 50 days ago. The hearing unsurprisingly turned into a really heated partisan debate over U.S. policy on Iran because Liu was deeply involved in the Iran nuclear deal under Obama that Republicans famously are not a big fan of. And so he was just voted out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday. The vote was 12 to 9. Every Democrat voted for him. Every Republican voted against him, save one, the ultimate wild card in the world of congressional foreign policy, Rand Paul, who voted to support Jack Lew. So his nomination is going to advance to the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said it's a priority to get the U.S. ambassador out there. My guess is that the vote will be far from unanimous, but he will eke by because of that Democrats' narrow control of the Senate. It might be a vote of 52, 53, 54, um, four and 46 against based on some congressional aides I've talked to, but he will get out there. Of course, it will be after the crisis has erupted. Same for Biden's current ambassador nominee to Egypt, who is also rushed out. Um, but just to beat a dead horse here, I, I pulled up before we, before we got on the show, a list of some of these ambassador nominees and how long that they have been waiting for the Senate to confirm them. And I just want to read off a few if if you are okay with that. Um, the first, Lebanon, Lisa Johnson was nominated 249 days ago. She still hasn't been confirmed. Egypt, um, which Akbar mentioned is very important here. Harold Mustafa Garg, he was nominated 205 days ago. Mark Libby, the U.S. ambassador and a nominee to Azerbaijan. Not the topic of this podcast here, but Azerbaijan and Armenia are obviously in the midst of this of this very, very important conflict for, for the, or very devastating conflict for the South Caucasus. Uh, the U.S. ambassador nominee to Azerbaijan was nominated 513 days ago. So all of these people are still waiting in limbo to be confirmed. And it's just a sign of 
I guess, how embarrassingly bad the system has has broken and failed U.S. foreign policy so far. And as we said before, you know, we're just seeing this play out in real time in the current crisis. As you laid out very well, there are, you know, several vacancies. But at the same time, it appears that the State Department is also losing some top officials. I'm, I'm speaking, of course, of the high-profile resignation of Josh Paul, a State Department veteran of, of over a decade, um, which points to some of the dissent and, and um, discontent, I guess you could say, at State Department. And so, Akbar, I want to turn to you to, to dig into some of, of your reporting. I believe one of your headlines in HuffPost called it a mutiny that's brewing. Um, what have your sources been telling you about sort of the state rank-and-file and higher officials' view of how the Biden administration is handling the crisis. So I'll start by saying uh, I got a compliment two days ago about that that headline, the mutiny brewing, and someone said, oh, this is so seasonally appropriate. It's like a witch for Halloween. I can't take credit for it. That was the phrase my source used. So, you know, kudos to that person. Um, I'll tell you the story by zooming out a little, because I think it's important to remember that not all national security functions are housed at the State Department, right? And there's a broad range of officials with various touch points on this crisis who are telling me they're feeling extremely overlooked, unheard. And I think what, what's really critical here is, is a broader conversation we've had about diversity in national security, which Joe Biden promised repeatedly to prioritize, right? And that's supposed to be diversity of background and also diversity of perspective. That's supposed to make the policymaking and decision-making better. Um, and I just want to read to you a quote that, that one current official gave me that I thought really put it well, where they said, quote, one reason to want a diverse staff is to have a variety of inputs into your decision-making. You want to benefit from the more informed decision-making that happens from a broader set of experiences having a seat at the table. The inner inner circle on these issues is not at all diverse. Does that completely explain the monstrous disregard for innocent Palestinian lives? No, but it's hard to think these things are entirely disconnected. End of quote. And what that official is saying there is, is really the mood I'm hearing from a lot of people. The administration's response to some of my reporting and, and others, I mean, I, I broke the news about Josh Paul and, and all that, and the admin has said, well, we're doing listening sessions. There was one at the State Department just this morning uh, for a, a significant number of bureaus. But just saying to people, we're listening, we hear you, is like that bad scene in succession, right? Like it doesn't actually allay people's ongoing concerns about the policy decisions that are being made and, and that they feel really implicated in as U.S. officials, right? This is a frustration that isn't new. This goes back to, to years of people feeling that, especially on the Israel-Palestine issue, whatever they say, whatever they propose is very carefully watched. So many people describe what, uh, what I characterize as a culture of silence across government agencies, particularly at state. Zooming in on state a bit, I would say the mood was especially bad and has, has remained quite bad. Uh, I'm still hearing from sources talk of people you know, resigning. I'm hearing from people about how they aren't talking, you know, to their own contacts because they don't want to, in one instance, someone said, give people false hope, right? Someone trapped in Gaza. So there's a, there's a deep sense of dissatisfaction and a sense of what are we here for? And I don't think that just listening sessions are going to address that. 
Yeah, I want to get a sense, uh, especially for the listeners, of, of what dissent at the State Department usually looks like, you know, in, in perhaps other issues other than Israel-Palestine, um, because of, as you mentioned, there is this sort of culture of silence or, or chilling effect when it comes to dissent on this issue. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what is the dissent channel? Um, you know, what, what legal protections are there in place for State Department employees who dis- who would like to dissent, you know, or or you know, disagree with official policy. Um, Robbie, I can turn back to you if, if you have a sense of that. Yeah, they, I mean, they, there's this, the dissent channel, as it's called in the State Department, has this vaunted, uh, very symbolic and deeply held significance within America's diplomatic core. I think one of the most famous cases for any history wonks out there is is the blood telegram sent by the a top U.S. diplomat in to then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger um, in the 70s about voicing opposition to how the U.S. was handling a crisis there between Pakistan and, and now Bangladesh that that basically turned into a, a you know a, a wave of, of atrocities and, and genocide. And so that this cable this system allows anyone at any level to send a dissent cable, and that goes directly to the Secretary of State's office. And more than that, the Secretary of State's office has to reply to it and address it. Um, and so it's a, it's a type of system where, you know, diplomats who are often sort of in the weeds of the bureaucratic machinery feel if they see something very wrong, that they can go to the top, cut through all the red tape and bureaucracy and, and layers of management and say, this is wrong, and someone needs to know about it. It's come up time and again, um, especially in the case of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, where a dissent cable warning of what ended up happening, you know, Afghanistan descending into chaos, um, the U.S. evacuation not going so smoothly, um, became part of this really heated debate between Capitol Hill and the administration of whether this dissent cable should be publicly released or sent to Congress. And so it's a really important mechanism within the State Department for you know, diplomats, young and old, senior and junior, to rise up and say, hey, this is wrong. As Akbar mentioned, um, and I've confirmed and reported on, there is at least one dissent cable circulating within the State Department now about how the Biden administration is handling the crisis in Israel. Uh, the gist of the dissent cable is it goes to a lot of the criticism that Akbar has been uh, reporting on, which is these diplomats feel that the U.S. is not being critical enough of Israel and not putting enough pressure on Israel to try to mitigate the humanitarian catastrophe going on in Gaza right now to halt the strikes to push for a ceasefire. That is something that, you know, even if I think the entire diplomatic corps signed, I don't foresee there being a major shift in the Biden administration's policy just because of how Biden and his generation of democratic foreign policy Scions here view the relationship with Israel. Um, I think that there is a there is a big generational gap. It seems in the United States on how the average voters, at least on the left, view the U.S. relationship with Israel. There's still a lot of hawkish Israel supporters in Congress now. Um, former Senate colleagues of Biden. So I don't see it going away. You know, I don't see this dissent cable changing things, but it is a way for the diplomatic corps to sort of plant a flag in the ground and say, we disagree with this U.S. policy internally. And as we've seen from some of the reporting from Akbar and others, you know, it's it's getting a lot of buzz and it's showing that there's this 
there's this massive chasm within Washington, D.C., within the interagency on how to respond to this crisis. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And Akbar, I'll turn back to you if you have anything to add about this cable that's been circulating, you know, from what you've heard from your sources. I'd also ask you to to expand on something you mentioned in in one of your articles, which is that you said that House GOP has stoked fear by politicizing the the dissent channel process in recent months. Um, If you could expand on that as well. Absolutely. I love Robbie. We've been to Germany together and had many great adventures. But Robbie, I will disagree with you a little bit. I think that is potential for a shift. I don't think the descent channel cable is going to by itself produce a shift. I think depending on the situation on the ground in Gaza, how that's reflected in Congress, how you know mass movements in the US kind of push President Biden, there is some room for a shift. I wouldn't be surprised if there's there's moves towards greater US pressure, more visible or maybe more private that has visible impacts the U.S. pressure on Israel to be more targeted and and more restrained in this operation. Who knows? Predicting the future as a mug's game. On the point of the descent cable, I think it's circulating widely. There's a lot of interest in it. The Something that, that people should understand about the process is that it actually does require the policy planning staff of the Secretary of State to respond, to prepare an actual point-by-point response to, to what's raised in the cable. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. The Afghanistan point is a really relevant one because it's happened just this year. And the background there is that, as Ravi mentioned, there was a descent cable prepared amid the fall of Kabul, uh, warning of all the things that you know people predicted might happen, that did happen, that were horrible. And certainly there are people in the White House who kind of wish they'd listened to that advice, given the toll on, on President Biden's reputation, among other things. Uh, that Afghanistan cable went through the channel, was protected as all of these cables are supposed to be, you know, went up to the Secretary of State. House Republicans took control of the House earlier this year in January and used their position. Um, Chairman Mike McCall of the House Foreign Affairs Committee used his position to say, I want to see this dissent cable. They are, he is conducting an investigation of the Afghanistan debacle, what went wrong and accountability on that front is certainly important. It's certainly something that has been called for in a bipartisan way. What has scared a lot of people is that he insisted on seeing the actual cable as he kind of builds this case against the Biden administration. Uh, There was a lot of interesting debate, uh, I think including in the pages of Lawfare, between various ambassadors, diplomats, experts on is it okay for someone outside the department to view this cable, particularly someone with strong political views, um, and ultimately, a decision was reached that, you know, that the chairman could view the cable uh, with the names of the signatories redacted. 
all of that said, there is so much fear, uh, as you both know, within national security circles of being targeted by some Republicans and, and frankly, by, by potential uh, second Trump presidency, right? So President Trump and many of those around him uh, have already said if they come back into office, they would weed out more of the deep state. And so there's a real fear of, okay, if I'm my neck is sort of out on the line here, a Rubicon has already been crossed by allowing Chairman McCall to view the cable, right? So what comes next? Are people's names, are signatories' names on the line? Are their careers potentially ruined? And I just remind people, this is not just about, you know, your cushy government job or your healthcare. It's really about whether you have the ability to be an expert in this space, to use the the abilities you've cultivated over a lifetime and feel passionately about. And there are people who've been smeared, who've never fully recovered. Uh, that was the case of Sahar Nawazadi early in the Trump administration, uh, targeted on the basis of her Iranian heritage. People are extremely aware of those cases and of the kinds of grudges that can be held. So that's definitely an unprecedented approach. And I do think that that uh, what I'm hearing from folks involved in the cable, certainly sympathetic, so they have an incentive to say this, but it, it does make sense to me. What I'm hearing is, you know, that there hasn't been a high-profile cable of this type since McCall did his Afghanistan cable thing and the department let him do it. So checking the influence of it, the measure, the popularity, it may not be, it may be apples to oranges to anything that came before. And Robbie, just to clarify, what is the process by which a dissent cable can be made public? The process by which Congress can read it, and then also the process by which it can be made public. Um, and feel free to, you know, I guess, go back to the blood telegram, for example, which I know is now in the public domain. Was it leaked? Or, or is there some sort of um, internal process that that allows it to see the light of day? What I will say is the dissent cable channel is always supposed to be confidential and internal within the State Department. Sometimes, not always, they are leaked um, because conscientious objectors think that, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and it's important for media to get this information out there to the public on this type of dissent. Um, oftentimes, they're not. And it's also important to point out that that dissent cables can range across across various issues. So some can be on very big high stakes policy issues. Some can be on on management issues on, hey, the, you know, there's no reimbursement form for if we, you know, have to take a flight for work and like, you know, the State Department isn't, you know, reimbursing us or or fixing those travel receipts or something like that. So there's a whole tier of different descent cable options here. Um, but no matter what, they're supposed to stay internal. Um, the ones that have gotten out have either come through time by being declassified or relayed to the public through Freedom of Information Act requests. But in general, they are all supposed to be and stay internal. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, I in talking to both current and former diplomats about this dissent cable um, that Akbar has been reporting on, people are really torn. There are some people who feel strongly that the dissent cable should have been written, but should have never been leaked. There are others who say, I might not have signed it, but I'm glad I leaked. And there are others who say, you know, obviously it shouldn't have been written and it shouldn't have been leaked because, you know, we're working this out internally and we don't want to sort of air our grievances in the public here. Um, so there, there's still a very lively debate within the diplomatic corps based on about a dozen current former diplomats I've talked to about this issue now. Um, but I think Akbar's point is real that, that you know, if the contents of the cable 
of, of any cable get out, you know, that can be a big deal. But if the names on the cable get out, especially for something so sensitive as the U.S. relationship with Israel, as this current crisis in Gaza gets out, people can really, people, there's a genuine fear that this could really hit their careers here. So they are, even though they're signing their names onto something very confidential, they are taking a risk, rolling the dice with their career in their own view um, on determining whether they want to sign this or not. Akbar, I want to go back to something you said earlier about this sort of classic grievance uh, harbored by many State Department employees throughout the decades of, of you know not being listened to and, and not having their counsel and, and policy preferences prioritized. I want to turn to uh, a couple stories. So first, um, the New York Times on October 24th released their investigation of the hospital explosion, which as far as I read it, didn't reach, you know, conclusion, uh, but it, it did call into question, I guess, the Biden administration's, the extent to which their intelligence was conclusive. And I also wanted to talk about your article that came out um, just moments before we started recording, which the headline was Biden cast doubt on Gaza's death statistics, but officials cite them internally. Um, so I want to talk about this sort of split screen between internal intelligence analysis, and then this uh, sort of external public facing difference. So yeah, Akbar, if you could speak to that, uh, especially your, your reporting that just came out today. On the hospital bombing, I'll just start with it is one of, you know, it's obviously one of the most emotional and terrifying instance of this whole, of this whole uptick in fighting because of how many people died, because it was a hospital, there's the added layer, it was a Christian hospital. And I think that inflames people in, in a kind of different way because one often forgets that many Palestinians are Christian, right? Um, I'll just say on that, that, that it was striking to me how quickly, uh, the president reached a public conclusion and, uh, how quickly, you know, there was, U.S. intelligence made available to various reporters saying that their conclusion was it wasn't. Israel, I think it's very difficult to know what it is, but within the fog of war, within active fighting, my sense is I, I don't know how much more we're going to get on this from, from U.S. officials and how, how strong the, the intelligence gathering can even be. On the, on the second piece, uh, and I think this is linked because it really comes down to this question of do you believe what, what Gazans are saying about themselves as their homes are being bombed, they're being displaced, they're being mutilated, uh, and they're watching their loved ones die. <laughs> and uh, President Biden said yesterday uh, a really striking comment that, you know, even people who knew him as an old school, old school thinker on these issues, uh, extremely pro-Israel over the years, but even, even with all that, it was a striking comment where he said, quote, I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. And that is such a such a, a remarkable statement to make about a group of people who are under bombardment and siege. Uh, you know, amid the US itself, Biden himself saying we respect the laws of war. They haven't used the term collective punishment, but it's sort of been been indicated that they don't want to see collective punishment of Gazans because of the activities of Hamas. Right, a group that does not include cousins and has not given them a say in how their life works. So what I did in this story, um, Biden had made that comment and I had had access to uh, a number of State Department cables, um, including 
many of the cables that the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem has sent back on the situation, which are supposed to be the most, uh, you know, up-to-date U.S. assessments to inform the State Department's internal discussion and policymaking. And what I found looking through these cables is that again and again and again, when the cable said casualties, Israeli casualties are attributed to the Israeli Ministry of Health, and casualties in Gaza are attributed to the Gazan Ministry of Health, right? So the State Department internally is saying, we are informing ourselves based on what Gazans say is happening to them inside their, their enclave. And this is really important because uh, that's, you know, there's no other way for people to get a good sense of what's happening on the ground uh, because of limited access. Again, Gaza is, is a blockaded piece of land. So for many years, not just in this conflict, uh, but including in the past rounds of fighting between Israel and Hamas, the United Nations, a lot of people have relied on these figures provided by the health ministry. Now, what President Biden seemed to be hinting at and what some more ardent supporters of Israel suggest is that the health ministry is corrupted in some way, that it overstates the casualties you know, for political reasons, to make Israel look bad. And, and you know, then they'll also say, of course, Israel is very careful and, and doesn't target civilian areas and takes every measure to protect civilian life. Uh, what these State Department cables I access showed is that within, within the department, people take that Ministry of Health seriously. They also showed that a really interesting nuance to me was that in the earlier reports uh, prior to the hospital bombing, these, these cables just said, you know, the de facto Ministry of Health in Gaza. And then once everyone's starting to have this conversation of, okay, you know, maybe there's some, some suspicious reporting from the ground, which around the hospital, there was some reporting from the Ministry of Health later found to be wrong. So after the hospital bombing, there was a shift. And I think you've seen this throughout the media. It's really interesting to see it reflected inside the State Department. There was a shift in saying the Hamas run Ministry of Health or the Hamas Ministry of Health. But the fact remains that this is widely seen as the best source of evidence. Uh, and it was extremely demoralizing from what I'm hearing from officials for, for the president to go out and say, we can't believe this when it's what officials are relying on. Yeah. And Robbie, did you have anything to add regarding this potential discrepancy between um, what the administra- administration is saying externally and what's happening internally or, or to unload the question perhaps? Where, what have you seen in terms of alignment between um, outward-facing communications and, and internal deliberations? I think it's a really interesting debate now. Um, and going back, you know, it sounds like Akbar and I disagree on the extent to which internal dissent can influence U.S. policy here. Uh, I mean, just to disagree with myself or backtrack a bit, I think Akbar is right that um, the constant drumbeat from, you know, the diplomatic corps, the rank and file that, you know, uh, U.S. government personnel experts on the ground, I think, has been moving the dial a bit. Um, I think you have seen Biden, outside of these comments, um, talk a bit more about pushing Israel to to temper its uh, what it's what is going on. Um, there's a lot of chatter within the National Security Council and the State Department about how the Biden administration is really pushing Israel to keep delaying the full ground invasion of Gaza, which would turn a grim humanitarian catastrophe even into an even more grim one. 
um, because it's dense urban warfare. Hamas has hundreds of miles of tunnels built under Gaza. And of course, no matter which side wins in urban warfare, it's the civilian population that loses. Um, and so I think the the administration is attempting to strike this balance between support for Israel, trying to minimize humanitarian casualties. But clearly, if if you know, the experts who covered this region within the US government thought they were doing a good job, we wouldn't be seeing these types of leaks, we wouldn't be hearing about these types of dissent cables. Um, So it's a really difficult moment. And I guess just taking a step back, I mean, a diplomatic corps has been through a lot in recent years, Um, the Trump era being at the center of Trump's first impeachment scandal, a whole cadre of Trump era appointees at the State Department being accused of bullying and harassment, Trump himself castigating the diplomatic corps for being part of the swamp. So when Biden came into office, you know, politics aside, I think a lot of diplomats were, were saying, okay, you know, domestic politics aside, we're, you know, we can get back to business as usual. This is behind us. But this is really the first major crisis of the diplomatic corps that Biden and Secretary Blinken have faced. And a couple of veteran diplomats I've talked to said that they've never seen this type of internal uproar before. And some of these people have been there for 10, 20, 30 years. And so there is there, there is something to this really heated internal debate. And as Akbar put it, a you know, sort of internal mutiny within the State Department. How that plays out, how that affects Biden's ultimate policy on Israel, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe Akbar and I still disagree a little bit on that. I mean, the the one thing I will say is is Senator Ben Cardin, the new chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, um, who's who's been a pretty vocal. He's he's a staunch supporter of Israel, but um, has always been a pretty consistent voice on human rights within the Senate today said that, you know, calling for a ceasefire would be, quote, what Hamas wants. And he said Hamas needs to be taken down. A ceasefire does not do that. He also said he's not ready to acknowledge that there's been a misuse of Israeli weapons in Gaza. And so that just goes to show that this approach of the U.S. that the U.S. is giving to Israel is backed by other members in Congress and that it, you know, the, the internal pressure of the State Department may may not be enough to move the dial in a significant way, even if we've seen some small shifts internally, given the, the pretty steadfast support that you see for Israel from a lot of Biden's Democratic allies around the around the city. Akbar, since breaking the, the story, I believe, on October 18th, if I'm not mistaken, of Josh Paul's resignation, what have you seen or heard in terms of fallout from that particular resignation? Uh, and then to um, apologize for asking you to play the mugs game of predicting the future, I'm curious if you foresee any other resignations coming down the the, the pipeline. Yeah, I just want to pick up on one thing uh, Robbie said, which I think is a really astute point um, about how strong, widespread, and steadfast support for Israel is, right? This is something that is bipartisan, is deeply rooted. It's in the DNA of the entire national security establishment, not just the State Department, not just Congress, DOD, there's people-to-people links, all of that. And I think the really interesting debate happening within that community is what is in the long-term interest of Israel, right? And that's uh, how a lot of these conversations are being framed. Um, I think it's really noteworthy that that a lot of the, the folks who have concerns, right, are, are concerned about Palestinian life. They're also concerned about where Israel goes after having, like, this, this huge disruptive war in Gaza that 
leads to a ton more anger, a ton more regional alienation, a ton more risks potentially. I mean, immediately from Iran, proxies, others who are supportive of Hamas or are just angry about Gaza and where it leads in the long run. So I think that, that we really need to also reframe how we think about pro-Israel and like how that conversation will go. To your point about what happens, what the upshot is of, of Josh Paul's resignation, I've continued chatting with him. Uh, I know he's been, you know, he's been all over town. I, I said to him, you know, you're a celebrity now. Um, he said an interesting thing to me a couple of days after he left, where he said, Many people had been reaching out. He'd said that to me before, but he also said, I thought no one would want to touch me with a 10-foot barge pole. And that too gets to the importance of the moment, right? So when you think about this assumed chilling effect or culture of silence around Israel-Palestine, it's been a long time since it's been really tested, like how that actually works. The fact that Josh Paul left, you know, one week later is, is still around, is not being demonized in some huge, massive way or targeted, I think was really striking for a lot of people and does suggest that maybe there's a shift uh, in their assumptions. And that cuts your, to your second question of, will we see more resignations? I don't know. I mean, people who are, who've already joined the State Department or NSC are, are mostly institutionalists, right? They think positive change comes from being within the institution. Uh, but I think you could see some, now I'm sure you'll ask me for a number, so I will uh, decline in advance to provide that. Fair enough. O- a wise move. <laughs> I want to uh, sort of end here with a bit of a, a role-playing <laughs> of sorts. Robbie, I'll, I'll start with you. You were Jack Lou or whoever the eventual ambassador to Israel is. Uh, on day one, You know what, what's on your agenda? What are you looking at? What, who are you talking to? Oh, my gosh. That's a great question that I don't have um, this incredible answer to. Probably one of the reasons that I've never been nominated to be a U.S. ambassador. Yet. Um, well, that and I don't have like $10 million to donate to a presidential campaign, which is the other fun way to get an ambassadorship. I think I think one of the most important things for a U.S. ambassador to do on the ground right now is to try to lower the temperature in East Jerusalem and the West Bank to the extent any U.S. ambassador can. But one thing, one thing a U.S. ambassador could do because the U.S. has so much cachet and sway in Israel right now is really put pressure on, on Netanyahu's right-wing government to, to try to stop the attacks by Israeli settlers on Palestinians to try to help dial down the temperature in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. I think one other thing that Jack Lew will be doing is doubling down on Biden's uh, overtures to uh, Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies that the U.S. will respond in force if they try to become involved in the war and turn this into a two-front war with Israel. Whether that is a good policy option or a bad policy option, um, not for me to say, but I think that is going to be one of his top priorities if and when he's confirmed. I think the I think the final point is like it, you know it's clear from from Akbar's latest story that that the U.S. embassy in Israel really needs some really needs some strong leadership one way or the other. I think there's a lot of people that, as we've been saying over the course of the past hour, are incredibly disaffected, are incredibly disturbed by the crisis within the U.S. diplomatic corps. And so I think I think a big a big job description for the for the U.S. ambassador to Israel day one is going to be, you know, internal management, morale, talking to his own staff there. Uh, and Akbar, you have the last word. You are Ambassador Liu or 
Ambassador Ahmed on day one? What, what are you looking at? I, I really like Robbie's point about morale. And I think one thing uh, that's, that's talked about a lot is in morale in Mission Israel, which covers the occupied Palestinian territories, is locally employed staff. And I think that would be an issue I would really show that I'm highlighting. I've heard, I've heard concerns about that from a really broad range of officials um, and really senior people, because you have to remember State Department people on the ground and, and abroad are getting the updates about how locally employed staff are doing, Palestinian staff, right? And there's, there's a lot of concern there. So I would do that. Do I have to be the ambassador in Jerusalem or can I be in also in Cairo or Amman or somewhere else? Okay, I'll allow it. Yeah, ambassador in in, in, in the region uh, elsewhere as well. I'm making him ambassador to the whole Middle East. <laughs> I'm Jared. Actually, surprise, I take off my mask. Um, so as Jared, Kush, uh, I'm back. Everyone loves me. I think what, what, what I do is uh, try to get some kind of very clear joint uh, statement from regional countries, uh, particularly Arab countries on on this, because I think there's a lot of questions being raised about their role of what they'd like to see from the US, right, in terms of getting Egypt to open the Rafah crossing, getting significant amounts of aid to happen, getting the Qataris who are leading negotiations with Hamas on hostages, getting them to move quicker on that. That's where I would really focus because I think they hold the key to a lot of this. And also thinking of, of pressure points the U.S. has potentially on Prime Minister Netanyahu, he really cares about that, right? He still wants the Saudi normalization deal to happen. So I think that's where I put my focus as a special envoy, Jared Kushner. Well, Robbie and Akbar, I'm sure you both are very busy from what I've seen from your bylines. Um, so I'd like to thank you both for taking the time uh, and for your reporting as, as we attempt to, to follow this war. Um, so thank you both. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. This was fun. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.